hit record. <laughs> Coming to you live in person in Portland, Oregon this time. Uh, the last time we were together, it was in Minnesota. And uh, it was hot as fucking hell. And I think the temperature is better here in Portland today. Uh, but this is one of those rare instances where we're not not hearing each other, but then pretending to respond in a way we think is probably best. I'm going to have to bring my poker face tonight. Usually <laughs> you can't see when I'm rolling my eyes and sticking my tongue out. I feel it, though. I feel it. I feel, and that's when I'm like, God damn it. I even feel it when I'm editing. Like, oh, he's rolling his eyes. I can I can tell he's just been really quiet. So quiet, he's loud. Uh, I guess we got to clap even though we're in the same room. Okay. <laughs> did I'll you clap like... on your microphone. You clap on my microphone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, uh, did you like the explosion the last time? I don't know if I can do that again. It was pretty badass. It was badass. All right, one, two, three. <laughs> we weren't even in time in the same fucking room. God. Now it's I have just to that like... light travels faster than sound. It was fine. <laughs> Into your mic, I cough. Motherfucker. I can be like sitting here talking to you for like, um, you know, like a half hour before we do this thing. And I'm like, no coughs. But as soon as we hit record, I'm like, <laughs> All right, um, I'm Ryan Kenneth Finish, Phil Niche McKenna. That was too many nicknames. <laughs> and you are? I'm Harlan the Unctuous Bumpkin Grant. Wow, you were prepared. Um, we're the Doddlers. The do- this is the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast in person. respiratory diseases you stay over there ah yeah you've come to the wrong fucking den it is like dogs I've got my in latex heat. gloves on and my little <laughs> white painter's mask over my face yeah it's like you're in southern california it's like bird flu is out 
Yeah, it's instead it's this the McKenna family flu. Uh, yeah. So today we're gonna talk about something I'm <laughs> this is supposed to be exciting. I'm supposed like, to be like, yeah, this is my child, Chance. and I'm Get the proud of out. it. Yeah, exactly. No, fuck. I'm just this is this is like the supreme of like, don't fuck up, Ryan. The supreme. I have like all the people who were ever like advisors and all that kind of stuff. Like I have all of them just in my head, like little thought clouds, just like shaking their heads at me. Like, that's not what we taught you. (laughs) It's just the worst. What happened to you? You had so much unique contribution. Yeah, that's right. That's what I have to, I have to tell myself things today. If they understood you, then it wouldn't be profound and interesting and novel. Thank you. This is really starting to turn around. What was the thing Nietzsche said about, uh, you know, our greatest insights must sound like crimes to those not meant to hear? Yeah, yeah, okay. You're making me feel even more better, even betterer. The topic today is an idea I have about, it's like a mechanism for diversification in consumer resource systems. What now? (laughs) Are we talking about evolution? Yeah, we are. Let's start there. I think people know that word. Yeah. I have an idea about evolution, everybody. Um... And in particular, I guess I'll just start with me, because that seems easy enough. Um, anyway, I'm really into diversity variation. Uh, I don't know why. I think it all stems back to my childhood, where my mom... I'm doing this, Harlan. Don't you fucking <laughs> laugh at me. <laughs> where my, my mommy... Sorry, mom. Uh, she listens, trust me. My mom would get me, my dad's like, I got you those things too, you know. Anyway, um, my mother would get me, I'm sorry, dad. Anyway, ah! My mother would get me these little animal figurines, and it's like they were made in Germany or something like that, so they were, the craftsmanship was really good. And Got me zoo books, and I loved going to the zoo and all that stuff. I also remember one time when I was a kid, we were, I'm, I'm from upstate New York, and it was in this museum it's like sort of natural history museum, but it's kind of, you know, hodgepodge of a lot of things. Anyway, I remember looking at this moose, this stuffed moose, and I was clearly a child, but this thing was huge. And just being enamored by the charisma of all the different kinds of things, you know, the different various states of diversity, you know. And so I guess I just, I want to understand how we get to that cool thing to me. Um. But it's it's just a big part of who I is. Questions? <laughs> you don't get what's diversity? <laughs> Sweet cha-ching. All right. So diversity, I think, usually is used usely loosely by <laughs> the uh, biological community to mean like it's like some measure of variation or there's like a number of species, uh, something like that. It depends on like where the discussion's at. Is it 
you know, at the organismal level? It is at the, is it at the molecular level? But in general, just if, you know, words that people have probably heard from biology, uh, like biodiversity, like, you know, it's a biodiversity hotspot in some little area of Costa Rica or something like that. Harlan's nodding, you know, very aggressively. He's like, yes, yes, I know that place. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it also means genetic diversity. That's not one I expect, you know, people to you know, be like, oh, yes, about either. But um, this is as opposed to like cultural or ethnic uh, identities, you know, diversity in that kind of a form. So, um, and then so naturally, if you're going to talk about diversification, which is kind of where I am bringing this idea into existence, whatever, um, you know, obviously it's the formation of diversity. And that, you know, it's applied across these sort of organismal molecular scales as well. So to me, though, uh, because I don't know, I mean, yeah, there's probably plenty of definitions out there, but I kind of want to come at this from my own place. You know, what I'm, you know, what am I thinking and, uh, you know, how is that maybe an amalgamation of a lot of things that I've read and thought and whatnot? Uh, so to me, diversity is just the non-uniform distribution of frequencies of variance within a system. That is, you know, modality, you know, and modes in the sense, in the statistical sense, you know, that if you can think of, uh, you know, an X and a Y axis for anyone out there who can or likes to, you know, it'd be like if you had, uh, you know, a line that had, you know, many humps, think of a back of a Bactrian camel, right? You got the, you got the, 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 I want to say regular camel. You got the the dromedary? one hump, the dromedary cool. camel. Yeah, there you go. The one hump camel. And think of that hump as like a normal distribution or something like that. But then, all of a sudden, two humps start to form out of one. And that's where you get like the two humps in the Bactrian camel. So I'm thinking the modes are like the peaks of those humps. And if you think of an XY axis, you know... Um, you know, that, that those different modes are what we call kind of in a collective way, I think is what we're talking about is diversity. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be specific to any one thing, I don't think. So it doesn't have to be specific to uh, species or something like that. Species, lineages, whatever we want to call it. Um, it could be like, again, genetic diversity or something. Or, of course, we then apply it as well to cultural identities and whatnot. So there's that. So that's the the main thing. So, it's so just... diversity is a system trait or property made out of individual variants. So yeah. the, if you take all the little atoms of the population you're measuring, if you have more than one variant, and there could be how many ever you choose to chop it up as, then... If you take a measure of the number of the various variants, you've got your the diversity of the overall amalgamation of the system. Yeah. And typically, well, I won't get into the details as to why it might kind of clump together necessarily yet, but that's the, the main thing I would say that would drive something like that in biology would be like reproduction 
and just you know naturally inheriting something and it it it's favorable perhaps and so it gets passed on further as opposed to something that's less favorable and is passed on less and less and you can imagine the differential of frequencies of some variant over time um so a, then if a system diversifies that's what you're talking about with this the model the mapping morphing from a dromedary into a bactrian yeah that right. if you've got n humps and then at a subsequent state your map has n plus 2 humps then the system has diversified yes and i might say as well that really what i might want to add to this which only now in the conversation comes to me is that diversity is then maybe the non-uniform distribution of the frequency maxima you know or or you know i want to include maxima in there that you know, and that's kind of what we mean is we're talking about a pattern, you know, because, you know, you could still have low frequency, but that's not necessarily contributing to what we are trying to say. I think when we talk about diversities, we're talking about winners, you know, in a way, especially when it comes to biology. Um, but yes, one hump to two humps. Thank you, camelops. So I guess, so that's that stuff. Now I have to, <laughs> I see this all the time in social media and usually interestingly enough it's about someone's place as a variant in the overall realm of diversity with respect to say cultural identities or one trait or another people are often like talking about with themselves you know like I'm overweight or uh, you know I've got bad vision and I'm going to tell my story you know and I'm going to tell my story <laughs> because, because I'm lame. It's about time. <clears throat> All right. So, so, you know, already that as a kid, I, I liked looking at, you know, who this is a tiger and it's orange with black stripes and has, you know, claws in a certain way and a different arrangement of teeth. Then say an elephant that doesn't have any stripes and barely has any fur and it's kind of gray and it's bigger. And, you know, so there's some relative relationships there. Whatever. I was enamored by that. The differences. So then I go to school later in life. I was 22 when I started going to college. It's an old man already. Uh, you dawdled around there. I, I dawdled the fuck out of shit. I'm going to dawdle some more. Before it's over. But I had a bit of a dilemma because I was really into music. And so uh, being into music, I thought naturally I would go into a music department and learn like music theory. And I don't know, learn how to like, I mean, I was learning how to play the piano. I already knew how to do all the like the basic string instruments that people play in rock and roll bands. And I already knew how to like put things together, but I didn't know how to read music or do anything like that. And I thought, oh, maybe something... I could do something. I'm not saying I was like, I'm going to be a composer. But, you know, how hard is it to be that Hans Zimmer guy? Joking. I'll be John Cage. That seems real easy. There you go. So, um, unfortunately, at the university, they were sort of like separate. Uh, the music department. So separate that like every time I'd talk to like admissions or anybody in the, you know... Um, administrative side of a university they'd always be like 
yeah, they're very different. And they just always gave me this like, yeah, it's hard. You know, go into English. <laughs> you know, like they didn't. They were. Just, they. I don't know what it was. You really needed like a pile of money and a lot of force to get yourself in there. So, I got frustrated, and so then I was just sort of like undeclared, or un. What is it besides undeclared? Anyway, I really wanted that other word, and I remembered it earlier today, and then I forgot it already. I think undecided. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> You're like this guy. It's going off the rails already. So anyway, I was in the, um, because, you know, you take your general studies courses, you know, whatever it is, you know, all the basic things you need to do for graduating. And so I was starting that process, but I was for, you know, you always go to a computer lab in school. I don't know if people do that anymore. Do people go to computer labs anymore? Are there like big old computer (laughs) labs? I haven't been on campus for a while, but I can't imagine so. Well, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, the way it's... Anyway, I don't know. Do you just, like, badge in your homework? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but I was in a computer lab, and I was just doing... I don't know. I was probably procrastinating. I was dawdling, most likely, not doing the work that I needed to be doing. And I just happened upon... And you know how it is when you're on online. You're just like, I don't know how I ended up here, but I'm learning how to cook like Szechuan chicken, you know, or whatever. So I saw this picture of Smiling on Fatalis, which is um, the saber-toothed cat that most famously one sees in museums, of course. They've got the big saber teeth, and uh, a lot of them get dug up out of Rancho La Brea in Los Angeles. And if you go to the Rancho La Brea um, Museum, you know, you can see lots of them in, in their full, uh, fully articulated and put together skeletons because the whole animal dies in the tar pits. And so it doesn't get, the bones and pieces don't get scattered. They pretty much stay, for the most part, together. Um, and I was in, I was like, oh shit. And all that stuff from my childhood came rushing back. So I went looking for a geology department found one because I figured that was paleontology. I didn't realize at the time you could do biology, but not at the school I was at. Um, and anyway, it ended up leading to lots of education and experiences, um, bachelor's degree and minoring and masters and all that. And I got lots of jobs, lots of internships where I was out in the field and I was collecting fossils and just go, go, go. So I, it gave me all this stuff to do and to learn and to expose myself. And I know Harlan's like, where is this going? I was at a Geological Society of America meeting and I had my poster up. But one of the things is that like I figured, well, if anyone's going to give me any kind of feedback, I might as well leave a little notebook. And so I left this notebook and lo and behold, a paleontologist was like, your work's so similar to mine. We should talk. And I was like, what? And it does a very surprising thing. Guy's name, I guess I'll just, you know, whatever. Get edited out later. The guy's name is Warren Allman, and he teaches at Cornell, and he's also the, you know, the director of their, the big museum. It's sort of associated with the university. Anyway, I went and talked to him about a PhD program in Ithaca, where Cornell is at. And uh, at one point, I asked him, like, "What are you thinking about these days?" And I don't know what it was about his answer. But for some reason, I just was like, eh, you know, and it, I, something happened. But he was just like, I just want to, you know, like, 
can we detect, you know, the process of speciation or diversification from fossils, like in the rock record? And I don't know what, he probably talked more and I don't know what the rest of it was. Probably it was influential. I don't know. But I just was like, yeah. And I just, that started this thing in me and I just started reading and uh, thinking a lot more um, until late September, early October, 2010. The idea just was like, bang. And I was like, oh, that's how it happens. And I was like... So he impregnated you. He very much impregnated me. We have a baby. <laughs> uh, he doesn't know. And the baby doesn't know that's his He's father. gonna now. You realize these are public, right? <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah, well, whatever. To 4.6 people. At this point, yeah. 4.6! Oh, fuck. That's sweet. We've really, really moved up. From 3.3 and a half. Anyway. How many hours has this been so far? <laughs> if I tell you my personal story, you won't be like, idiot, later. You'll feel sorry. You're sympathetic, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that late September, early October was a hot one, ladies and gentlemen. And um, it was like warm enough that it was like unseasonably warm. And it was one of those things where you're like, you're like, oh, it's starting to get cold now. I, I'll I'll put on this scarf because I'm I'm a college student, you know. You flip it behind your shoulder, or whatever. And uh, all of a sudden, it was like back to summer weather, and I was annoyed. And uh, one of the other things that annoyed the shit out of me was I kept running into cobwebs, like spider webs. They're just like everywhere all of a sudden. Birds were just like chirping and like. At, early in the morning kind of like the way it is in springtime when like the baby birds are like feed me at like four and you're like why won't you stop all of a sudden birds were just sort of really out and about everything was happening again things seemed verdant there was a little bit of rain ahead of that warm period so it was like okay and so this is sort of the environment that i was in anyway um i remember one moment was i was looking at uh, I got. I went to go get my wife, and uh, I got in the car, and um, the I got in, and as, as I got into the car, there was this spider web between the door and the passenger seat and the dashboard, you know, glove compartment, and in the middle was this spider. Just you know, I, I always picture it's just looking at me like, holy fuck, you know, as it like waved in the breeze of the door closing. Anyway, um, it started me on the path to thinking like, well, what is it that gets there to be this many damn spiders all of a sudden? And what, you know, why, why are they suddenly finding themselves in my car? Like, isn't there plenty of other space out there in the grounds of the apartment complex I was in or anywhere else? Like, why, why my car? Like, why are you stupid? You know, it's like the whole thing with that march of the penguins or whatever it is you know and they're all like marching to the sea but there's that one that's going left and you're like what is wrong with you everybody's going this way food is over here and you're like no i know it's over here they're all wrong and you're going marching to your death and that's what this seemed like this just seemed like such a stupid thing and so it got me thinking about dispersal and what are the things that might drive an organism to like Set up shop someplace else entirely. Anyway. Questions, Harland? <laughs> so this is an unusual spider location. 
You've gone into your car a bunch of times. Most of the time, there's not a spider staring back at you asking what's up. But this time there was. So then the scientist in you starts to wonder, I wonder, maybe there's a good explanation for this. What else is unusual right now that could potentially explain the unusual behavior of this spider? And then you're pointing to, perhaps, a weather pattern, right? right? That it became cold, but then it warmed way back up, and then there's all of a sudden spider webs everywhere, and now there's even a spider in my car. Right. And that's not supposed to happen. Sure fucking isn't. But um, it made me think that it's, in any case, whether or not this little example of all this stuff happening... If I can say any one thing about spiders or birds or whatever, it did strike me that, you know, this is an ecological network, even though it's in an urban area. And all these various different organisms are clearly responding some in some way, form or another to this change, this episode of change. And they seem to be in large numbers, you know, whatever it is. And so it made me think, and this is the idea that, um, what if like major changes, like episodes of major changes in resources were responsible for initiating the formation and establishment of populations and variants, you know, through controlling sort of the net growth of consumers beyond the influence of all other regulating factors. Like that is during or following major epi- episodic changes in resources, consumer populations diversify upon approaching like a new carrying capacity sort of as a way to sort of like a release valve like oh shit there's too many of us what do i do you know now you have options in terms of evolutionary responses because prior to that i kind of think that people tend to just think of it in terms of the lemmings example um and all I'll say about it is, it, you know, Disney made this movie about lemmings in Norway. And when the population got too large, they all just ran off a cliff into the ocean or whatever. And just like, you know, the idea being that they just like all committed suicide or there was just too many of them. If they stopped at the cliff and the others were running, they hit them from behind. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But there's this idea there's too many of us. So you all got to die, you know, as if there's no way to do something different instead of dying, you know. And so I thought, well, what if doing something different is a way to kind of ease the pressure on being one of these many uh, individuals? And, and of course, this is all about like population and resource growth. And so this is kind of the thing that got me going into this notion about consumer resource systems being kind of an engine for diversification. And the idea is called episodic synchrony because, uh, well, I, I, I'll stop for a second if you want to say anything or not. Well, no, yeah, the, this is where we should probably slow down and run through this a couple more times because okay. the phrase, this is the idea, was uttered and then a whole bunch of density followed. I know. And we'll pick through it and explain each piece. What's a consumer resource system? Is that what you call it? Dynamic? I mean, that one is just a system wherein there's a, you know, connection between some a resource, which could be, you know, an item uh, 
in the environment that is, you know, the, the problem with consumer resource systems is when you're trying to find one, it, you, you kind of have the other one right there. Like, well, it's just, you know. Because what makes, so for example, spiders and flies, maybe. Right, yeah. The thing that makes the fly characterizable as a resource is the fact that spiders consume them. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, that it's a, it's like the Niels Bohr complementarity point, right? Two sides of the coin. Yep. You, you're not a consumer unless there's a resource, but the thing isn't a resource unless it's consumed by something. So it's a really weird, you know, it, but it seems to me like it's very uh, core part of organisms because... Um, it's really important for reproduction and survival that organisms uh, attain the kind of, you know, resources that they require for those activities. They could be resources that you eat and get energy from and that drive all your own processes, but it could also be, you know, a great place to lay eggs or what have you, you know? Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be just about eating something. It just consumption be, doesn't mean ingestion. Right. It just means utilization. Right. And so it's it's really it also means that the like when you consume that thing, it's not really available to anyone else. You know? Uh suddenly that's sort of the 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 problem for other for others. And that's why to some extent I think there might be a bit of a clustering around resources. Um but uh, I do want to kind of step through some of the words that I used. Hmm? Uh, episode. I just think these are events that occur from time to time for various reasons, as opposed to cycling through a period for recurrent ones. So obviously night and day is this cycle. You know, it's, it, you could say, you know, I'm, I'm trying to just draw a distinction between episode, you know, ep episodic and periodic kind of okay. thing, you know. Um, then a major change in resources, I'm just saying, is a you know change that's to a significant degree beyond the average amount, or and and variability of say a, a fluctuating resource. So it's a major change. It's a much different than just the normal like oh it was high today, it was low tomorrow. You know like the stock or something, stock market or whatever. Um, synchrony uh, is mostly just from a network perspective that it's. Um, called like a local synchronization problem. There's also global synchronization problems. And um, this is, you can imagine just some, you know, uh, circuits or whatever in a, you know, in a little network and how do they, you know, transfer, you know, whatever they're transferring, you know, heat, energy, et cetera, electrons, whatever. Um, you know, they can globally get in sync. Like uh, people like to talk about synchron synchrony with respect to like uh you know the fireflies with the emergence property that the weak emergence or whatever but these fireflies in southeast asia as well as apparently tennessee that all blink at the same time um and that would be like a sort of quote-unquote global synchronization or macro synchronization and then i'm talking about something that for the most part i'm saying all you need is a consumer resource connection and that is sort of this little tiny, simple, simple motif in a network. And so I'm talking about micro-synchronization, and this is where the word synchrony is being used. The things that are being synced up is the consumer and the resource. Right. So that when there's an episodic resource change, there will be a synchronized 
corresponding alteration in the consuming population. Yes, but the idea being that it also is something where all other connections, I'll say all other connections, but many, if not, you know, many very important connections may not have a limiting, regulating um, effect on them because the resource is so good that you just keep going and growing as a consumer because you just have enough and an abundant amount of resources. Um, and that that's the primary thing that locks the two together. And that allows the consumer to kind of not be held down by anybody else. It frees them from their typical chains of constraint. Yeah. Thank you. I know you're good for something. <laughs> anyway, uh, and then net growth. I was saying net growth. Um, and I'm just saying, you know, it's it's kind of mathematical. It's like if you have the population size tomorrow and the population size today, that difference, it doesn't matter if the population size today was larger than tomorrow or tomorrow is larger than today. It could be a positive or a negative number, if you will, if you're looking at the difference between the sizes. So I'm just trying to say it's a net thing. So um, trying to make it as universal as possible without having to say growth and decay all the time. You know, it's like it's a net kind of uh, situation. It's a difference, you know, you, the, the delta N, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you may not net anything. You may actually be worse for the wear. And then regulating factors are just anything that limits net growth. Um, what are a couple examples of that in a normal situation? Uh, like starvation or something? If there's not enough flies and they all get eaten, then... I, I think net regulating factors are pretty loose. I feel this somewhat similar about resources. Um, yeah, it could be competition as a regulating factor, like the idea that, you know, there's a resource and I ate it and you don't get it. <laughs> you know, like we're both clamoring for Weller Antique 107 and I grabbed the last bottle and you don't have one, but I do. You know, and it, well, it's surely that, you were getting that as a gift. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Um, but, you know, so that's the idea uh, behind, you know, it could be a lot of things. Um, it could also be just sort of, uh, you know, so some of these effects could be density dependent. Like there's just too many people clamoring for that weller. Or it could be density independent and you're just walking along and a fucking tree falls on you. I'm just trying to say these things add, you know, you don't just get to do whatever you want now that you're alive or whatever as an organism. And so these things will have a little bit of an effect one way or the other on uh the size of the population so do you want to repeat it now again after the anything that limits net growth the whole oh episodic synchrony (laughs) uh episodes of major changes in resources can initiate the formation and establishment of populations and variants by controlling the net growth of consumers beyond the influence of all other regulating factors That is, during or following major episodic changes in resources, consumer populations can diversify upon approaching a new carrying capacity. Well, again, but in chunks. So, like, say a chunk, and then we'll (laughs) put it in English. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. uh, 
episodes of major changes and resources. That's a chunk. Okay, so what? When there's warm weather, so there's a new brood of flies that got born and survived then normally appear in October in Oregon. Yeah, something like that, let's just say. So, that, yeah, that, a major change in the resource. There's a whole bunch more food all of a sudden, right? Let's say yes. Let's. I mean, what I mean... My, he's always like, my examples aren't realistic enough. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they're... Um, when I'm, what I mean by major is not just like a little blip over a week and a half if you are spiders but a major change for a week and a half for bacteria might be good so it just it's just a relative thing based there on there needs to be enough generations kind of that yeah. occurred during the resource change for it to show up in the lineage yeah okay right so it has to be significant in that way so it, instead yeah. of it just being hot for a week there's climate change and the average temperature goes up a degree yeah. And then because of that change, now there is every year two additional weeks of fly broods than there used to be. You could say that, yeah. Okay. Um, it it probably become more clear with the examples I eventually give. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, okay, so there's an episode of resource in... A major change in major the resource. Major change in the resource, yeah. Major! Major, yeah. And the episode aspect is that this was, question mark, unpredictable? Is that what differentiates it from the periodic? I guess. It's certainly not um, something you're like, oh, you're turning into autumn now, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's not cyclical in the same, yeah. So it's not something, yeah. Okay. Uh, so episodes of major changes in resources can initiate the formation and establishment of populations and variants. What's a population? Too bad we did that already. I'm going to get too hung up on the can part. Mm. Because, I mean, in a stupid sense, well, anything can do anything. But that's not the point. Uh, okay, so... Nice timing. Can <laughs> like, initiate... The diversification event, the turning the one hump into two humps. Yeah. Well, it initiates this possibility, yeah. It Barring increases any the likelihood of a second hump forming. Um, it's, yeah, it starts the process. Yeah, sure. But to me, in my focus is it's just so long as it begins that process, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter that the likelihood what you're saying. I'm just saying what I'm mostly trying to get at is that, you know, when you get these pieces all set up, then you, you, you know, are able to start moving forward in this other direction um, towards creating more camel humps. Yeah. The other direction is the new variant becoming established. Yeah. Such that it counts as a peak in the graph. Hmm? Who's up first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. <laughs> Who is on first? Why are you asking me for? I don't know. Episodes of major changes in resources can <laughs> initiate <laughs> the formation and establishment of populations and variants 
by controlling the net growth of consumers beyond the influence of all other regulating factors. In other words, or is this this close enough to the same thing? Uh, this episodic increase in resources can remove or overwhelm the influ the other influences or remove constraints, but that this is that it supersedes the entirety of the other causes of the current variant distribution. Yeah, so I probably could change the wording to some extent because I don't want it to seem like you can't have uh, ecological release where maybe the reason why you're exploding is because, um, you know, you're as a population, you know, it's growing incredibly so. Uh, maybe that's because a lot of these regulating factors are suddenly lost or they go away or something like that. And now you have access to all the resources. Yes. Um, but the main idea is that, well, even then there might be other regulating factors. I figure there's no population that doesn't have regulating factors. So even if you remove some, you still are going to bump up against what the other ones were. And so maybe you can continue to, um, grow despite even those does that make no sense i think it does okay so i just i wanted to it's a tough one we'll get into some of the um other areas of this idea um and maybe that'll start to help clarify it a little bit mm -hmm. um and then i I don't know, do you, it, are you good with that? Or do you want me to say the, that is, and then say the other thing? I think we're good. Okay. So then, um, just to kind of build on the consumer resource systems thing, I think traditionally it's sort of studied as like dynamically coupled cycles. Examples are like predator prey, like Canadian lynx and the uh, hare, this sort of back up and down Canadian lynx follows in a lag, the the hare population size. Then you could also have like a host parasite kind of uh, dynamically coupled system cycling through, and you know you got the larch bud moth and whatnot. But populations can also be viewed as like noise added to this what's called a deterministic skeleton, um, and a lot of this is just the modeling, right? Of course. Um, so, but pop, you know, the changes in the populations have this. So there's other factors like tree falling on your head and, you know, that are regulating the numbers. And that's why it doesn't look like a perfect up and down sinusoidal wave graph or whatever. There's jagged edges and things are happening. And sometimes it's up higher than other times. And, you know, there's a lot of factors competing, you know, at the same time. And so your whatever numbers you're looking at and measuring are just all over the place. Uh, but moreover, sometimes there are changes to resources in a network that are greater than the normal amount of what a cycle produces. And so one example is an area research in ecology called resource pulses. And these are, you know, resources that just get, you know, suddenly for various reasons, you know, explode. It could be, you know, uh, seeds for a particular plant, maybe a bunch of trees or something like that produce quite a bit of uh, fruit or whatever, and it causes there to be this added resource for the, you know, 
organisms that use it for their life cycle or something like that. Um, and then there's another area called extreme events, and that's another area of research. And um, this is kind of the idea that, and th- this is an exam. This is not an example uh, for resources, but I like it, so I often think about it when I think about this stuff. But there's like, a, it looks like the the material that a bivalve say attaches to rocks. You know, they have this like really sticky, webby kind of stuff that they use to keep themselves bound to the substrate. It looks like that material is not designed for the average wave power, you know, the power of the waves crashing against them in the intratidal zone. If you ever go to the beach and it's not a super sandy one, it's more rocky or whatever, you'll see the muscles, uh, you know, those black looking clams or whatever. So it's not the average, it's the maximum wave strength that those binding, you know, sinewy, adhesive material is, you know, designed to hold the thing for. So it's the idea that big changes in resources and the environment can lead to evolutionary change. That's really all I want to hit on. So yes, there are cycles, periods. And yes, we traditionally study those dynamically coupled cycles. But sometimes things kind of get blown up and those cycles it's it's you know uh, it's 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 not happening anymore and you you ha- you know you you have a consumer that might end up having a little bit of a runaway with a resource, a, a really important one in particular. Because it has to be important enough to overwhelm the other regulating factors, or it wouldn't count as an episode. Right. In episodic synchrony Absolutely. theory. Yeah. Yes. Other resources become important, but just what it, you need is the initial one that's really important to drive you. Because, you know, natural selection is having a role to play in all of this. You know, it's saying, yeah, you, you're favorable and this is the kind of resource you need, God damn it. So that's where this idea um, I have of resource impoverishment and resource enrichment comes from. So, because, right, I don't think that that's been mentioned yet. And I don't know when it'll become super relevant, but this goes both ways. Yes, exactly. We've mostly been talking about enrichment side so far. I think we think enrichment, but the I try this is my attempt so far to this point to keep it as neutral sounding as possible. But it's so natural to be like because of I think Malthus to think well it's the growing, it's the upward trend. Uh, you know, it's the exponential growth, it's all that kind of stuff. I'm constantly thinking about enrichment. Like I mm-hmm. rarely think about impoverishment and i have to remind myself so i've been trying very hard to keep the language as neutral as possible so that it's like when you get to this point where you're talking about both ways it going then you can go okay yeah i you know if you return to the definitions or whatever maybe i'm not saying it does but maybe it's like oh yeah i could have gone both ways there maybe not. right i too i just naturally hear it as enrichment until you literally get to the phrase enrichment or impoverishment. Exactly. So I'll deal then with impoverishment first. The, like, aphorism that I say is, uh, that I would use is just the, the one everyone's heard, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And essentially the idea is that as important resources dwindle, you know, is there enough variation in a population that is capable of accessing alternative resources? 
and rescuing it from extirpation or whatever. Meaning, you know, okay, you've got this important resource and it's driving you to dwindle in population size beyond the influence of all other regulating factors. But what if there is some other resource that you, some component of the population is capable of accessing? Can they do it? Do you have enough variation to be able to do that? And then the resource enrichment, the little aphorism or whatever, the adage is it's an economic one, I believe, that a rising tide lifts all boats. Oh, yeah. And I hear, I hear both of those all the time. So this should be somewhat relatable just from those adages alone. Yeah, that's, <coughs> it's always helpful to anchor things to memes that are already in people's heads. You know? exactly. The soil is prepped. Yeah, right. Now, now I can start planting the seed. So for resource enrichment, as important resources increase... Conditions may be relaxed, may be relaxed. I'm not saying they are every time, but they may be relaxed, allowing rare variants, you know, the opportunity to find a stable, I don't know, functionality in the surrounding network once this higher level of regulation is reached. Okay, so uh, questions or issues or... To go... A little bit back. I think what you were calling this in general was another mechanism of biological evolution on the order of natural selection. Some of us ignoramuses have a tendency to conflate those two terms. Well, evolution, natural selection, same thing. (laughs) But I think you professionals, you Mm. people, treat... Evolution is the broader term, right? And natural selection is one evolutionary mechanism. Yep. Then genetic drift or whatever, that's another one. And then, so is the right way to phrase it, episodic synchrony is another mechanism of evolution. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Um, I couch it in this idea of like growth stages. So one of the things is if when, you know, a variant or, you know, a population, whatever you want to call it, the numbers of that trait, et cetera, when they're, when they're small, really small, they are um, subject to, you know, random acts of both cruelty and kindness from mother nature. And so they could, on the one hand, um, be just obliterated, and, you know, it's, it, again, I keep going back to this one, but the tree falls on your head. Or it could be that you just accidentally happen upon a nice patch of good stuff and somehow your variant survives and continues on into further generations. And maybe it just gets carried aloft and there's just more and more of you or something like that. Um, that variant then eventually reaches a population size or a size in its numbers or whatever that it can now be under the gaze of something like natural selection. And then once it's, it's reached that level where you have natural selection and the law of large numbers, if it is truly like a favorable trait or something, it will be, you know, yeah, that we, you know, I'm giving this like cartoonish characterization of natural selection as if it was like Jack Frost or something <laughs> like going around nature, 
But say it sees that and goes, yeah, we want more of you because, you know, this situation works, you know, and who wouldn't want a more favorable trait? And that's how you kind of get them into that next level. So now you've got a bigger population or a bigger number of variants that they are, you know, subject to natural selection now, no longer subject to chance and drift and whatever. So then the next stage of that is if you're at an even higher growth rate, um, say, let's say, you know, and this is the enrichment, you know, we're going in this very enrichment type direction. Then once you reach, you know, a tremendous amount of growth, you know, there's a sort of, um, and this is kind of how I think of it, there's uh, almost a reinforcement that, um, you know, uh, uh, you can have a whole added amount of variation to the system, to the population, what have you, um, because, um, again, a rising tide lifts all boats, so everybody's getting good, you know, uh, resources. And even if under previous circumstances, you might've been selected out, um, now you're, you're giving, you're being given a chance to be selected, um, or you're getting a chance to find an alternative path, uh, to living, or maybe there's really at this point, no major consequences to being a freak or monster or whatever, and um, you pass on your, you know, you know, whatever it is that you have to your subsequent generations who inherit it. And then you start to have more in common with those who came before you and maybe even those who are just in your vicinity than you do have with if the numbers are truly large and the variation is truly quite wide, then those freaks over there way far away from you. I'm trying to be spatial at the same time. It's, I don't know if that's working, but that in general, you know, in the trade space, if you will, you may not mate or have a care to, because you don't recognize, you know, if in a sexual reproductive uh, way, you may not recognize the, the weirdos as being something you want to mate with. But, you know, you want to mate with something that looks like you and your parents, perhaps. And so you reinforce that and you bifurcate. Okay, so, so are we now slipping into the, this is how episodic synchrony events can facilitate speciation? Or just, it, yeah, line, lineage, lineage diversification. diversification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of... I, I mean, obviously, we're here in audio only, um, and so there's no visual I can give other than through using words, but there's this guy by the name of Robert May, and he had a paper out in 1976, which essentially talked about very simple equation that you would think will, if you just keep plugging away, give you the same, you know, increase, you know, as you increase the number of inputs, you know, the, as the inputs increase into the equation, uh, you just get larger and larger outputs and those get fed back into uh, the equation. And it's this, uh, this uh, difference equation. You could, you could also talk about it. There's one in particular called the Ricker logistic equation. I know, I'm sorry, but Anyway, what it does, if you plot 
the population size output with increased values in the reproductive rate is you get this chaotic behavior and you get these bifurcations and it's quite expansive and extensive and there are all these crazy things that happen there's this fractals that happen and so it's kind of this it's an it's a system that's quite non-linear whose system is quite simple at the outset but whose product can be quite uh, uh varied in terms of you know what output it produces um and so this area of research was explored quite extensively in the late 70s in particular so there's there's other relationships but what i'm talking about when i'm talking about the reproductive rate um is something that's often called a control parameter and the idea is just that you know as you increase that value you get increased dynamics in your system and so what uh i can't really show you the picture but um if in the beginning at where you know you say on the axes where they come come together at zero i'm like doing this thing for harlan where i've got my hands together at the heel of my hand and my wrists are together i'm like right harlan this is this is why because it's really hard to imagine the zero point of a Cartesian coordinate. I Thank need you. a visual aid for this. I know. Well, well, you don't express. You you don't do this like <laughs> nodding affirmative. You're like, ah, ah, yeah, I get it, right? So I'm just like, is he understanding me? Anyway, the poker face is working. <laughs> yeah, totally. But in the beginning, uh, around zero and and going along with increased reproductive rate, you know, you're going to have low numbers. Or, you know, zero, really. And then eventually you have this sort of like big little jump to, a you know, a higher value of population size. And then it like has this long, slow climb and, and, and until it reaches, it doesn't matter what the value is. It's, it's like, it's like three. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, once it reaches a certain value, all of a sudden you get this bifurcation phenomena. And so I'm trying to say um, that's where you get synchrony uh, in an enrichment scenario. But you can then just go backwards towards the drift scenario, and then you have an opportunity um, due in large part likely to chance, provided you have enough variation, to maybe some of that variation can catch on to some alternative resource. Um Allow me to speak for 4.6 people. What? Oh, sorry. This part, I didn't I didn't get that part. I, I don't know. know if it's really important or if it's a uh, tangent. It's a, it's, it's a tangent, probably. I, we can get into more fun stuff, but yeah. The, the, where it came in was when we were talking about the way, the manner that episodic synchrony facilitates lineage diversification mm-hmm. and you were just using this particular person's model as one place where that shows up when we plug in some numbers and click play on our simulation we see this chaotic activity and you're like episodic synchrony can explain that is that kind of what's happening kind of yeah i'm using it as a way to at least talk about to provide some kind of context because there are other models and I don't even want to go into them right now, but they show the 
dromedary turn into a Bactrian, you mm-hmm. know? So that's the idea is that so long as you have, you know, this one particular control parameter, if that control parameter is a reproductive rate or something like what's, that. Okay, what's reproductive rate? Usually how I think of these things is, is they, you know, they tend to be defined mathematically. Um, but a reproductive rate would be like, um, say, your uh, birth rate minus your death rate divided by the generation time. Or no, yeah, multiplied by the generation time. And so you're canceling out the time units and you're just getting whatever the numbers are, the number of births. So it's not about over a given couple and how many babies they have. It's about a population and or a lineage and their... Tendencies. Time, you take time and you zoom out a ways so that you can look at births and deaths and you got to have... It's not just how many kids do most spider parents have well no you do you you can do it that way and then you multiply that times the population and that gives you the next you know a value for the next generation or whatever <laughs> let's just move on because or not no well i don't know it depends on how integral this aspect is to me understanding all it is is it's just saying like you know you could talk about it in terms of the population just like how many more uh you know are it's just like when they when and at what say are they um are americans reaching the replacement rate or whatever well oh it's we're in crisis because in the developed nations on average, people are only having 1.4 children, and we're going to die off, and everybody, right? Right. So here's here's what I'll say. I think there's a couple of different ways you can look at the rate, like, uh, you know, reproductive rate or whatever. Uh, in medical science, they like to talk a lot about prevalence and incidence, mostly because they're worried about cancer. But um, the idea of prevalence as far as I would understand it, is that it's just like, how many right now have disease X or whatever? And then incidents would be like, well, how many each year get the disease or something like that? And so you could have reproductive rate be kind of in both of those uh, ways in that it's like, well, your reproductive rate could be that, well, you got to a point where you have now large numbers and so those large numbers are still producing more even if their rate of indiv- you know even if each per- you know individual member of the population doesn't produce as many as before so maybe in the beginning when there's only like 10 of you everybody's having 5 to 10 kids or whatever but by the time there's like 5000 of you or whatever everybody's just having one but there's 5000 of you having one you know so it's that kind of like the reproductive rate is just how many more are you getting and it you know, uh, for some time unit or whatever, if you want to think of it in that way. So it's just it's just a rate in that sense. Sometimes people talk about rates and they're talking about, you know, probability more. Um, you know, like if I thought you some, have, they were giving it a, like a between one and five stars. Oh man, <laughs> so good. Um, so is you know I don't know any of these words because I'm not a scientist. Did that help at all? Or no? Reproductive rate is a dependent variable of resource 
availability. Is that the point? Like, if there's an enrichment or impoverishment of the resource, the reproductive rate will depend upon what happens. In so far as we're talking about survival and, you know, resources required to do the reproducing, yes. Because, you know, if you're not getting enough food and you're uh, pregnant, that can have an impact on your, you know, offspring, the output of your offspring. How strong are they? In a, in a wild scenario, imagine giving birth, you're starving, you give birth to these weak-ass kids and they're just, they just die because they don't have that extra whatever ability to combat cold or even disease or something like that. And they just get wiped out. But maybe there's a few that, and this is a natural selection type thing, but maybe there's a few that uh, are just hardier individuals. We could talk about reasons why that would be, but... They're from the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fucking the Midwesterners are just able to, you know, even though times are tough, they're able to make it work. Um, Maybe they're crafty. Maybe, maybe, Maybe some of these... You know, bears at the stream are just, it's tough times, but, you know, they're just skilled and they can catch the fish. And uh, their kids watch them catch fish and learn how to do it well themselves, or at least one of them or two of them, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that's kind of the idea. If there's an abundant amount of fish at the stream, eh, it's not too hard to catch. You know, it's like, eh, just put your foot down and like, bam, you caught one. But if it's hard times for the grizzly bears at the stream because the salmon aren't running as much because there's whatever i don't know a bunch of asshole humans catching them at the mouth of the river (laughs) you know putting a big dam there exactly but if it's like that generation after generation then those who are super skilled might have that capacity or maybe there are those who learn how to really be really good at stealing and they teach their kids how to steal and now you've got the stealers and the you know the actual catchers of the fish and it becomes this thing. And now you're starting to diversify in that way. Ah, I jumped the gun. Anyway. So <laughs> reproductive rate is the mediating factor between resource enrichment and lineage diversification. There's more fish. Or impoverishment. Well, yeah, but we, it's I easier to live. talk about if we just pick <laughs> one direction. All right, all right. And we'll pick the one that's more natural for us <laughs> to think about. Natural. Is natural is good the organic way mm. um right so there's more fish and that means bears can have more baby bears survive and then when there's more baby bears it's more likely that the lineage will diversify for various reasons that you did touch upon briefly but maybe that's the next step or i don't know is this wrong reproductive rate is a mediating factor between the episodically that's what synchronizes the consumers and resources. Resources go up, reproductive rate goes up, diversification happens. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's the connection. Yeah, yeah. okay. I mean, that's that's one of the connections for mm-hmm. sure, and it's really important because it's important to all, as far as I can tell, biological systems on Earth, whether you're a bacteria or a grizzly bear, you know, reproducing, and the rate at which you can do that... Um, in and of itself can be important to just, you know, getting your good traits out there. Oh, well, I, I don't know if this is the right place for this or not, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Okay. 
I've heard you try to explain this idea before. And so here's one of the oversimplified, dumbed-down ways for us non-scientists to think about it a way I would say it, and then you can correct. Right. And this is, again, going to be all enrichment style. Cool. When, so let's say we're little Tweety Birds, we're little finches, whatever, and our bills have a shape, and we're really good at opening and extracting seeds from these given pine cones, because that's the trees that are on our taiga, and this is what we typically eat. But then there's some climate change, so now there's a whole bunch more trees, and there's more seeds to eat. And there's more pine cones crack into and seeds come out. Such that some of the birds get really picky. And they bother to crack open the thing and pull the seed out. And they're like, ah, this one's doesn't taste quite right. The texture's not good enough. Totally. And it becomes discarded on the ground. Whatever. There's just seeds flying all over the place. <laughs> Resources are enriched. There's more seeds. Previously, little Johnny gets born and his bill's all fucking crooked and the top one and the bottom one don't match up and he's a cross bill mutant baby oh those fuckers and he can't crack the nuts they can't crack the pine cones open crack because his up, build's man. retarded yeah no, you can't say that <laughs> so in a regular editing a, a, <laughs> amount of resources johnny dies he's one of the first to go because his bill doesn't work but if you go into this enrichment scenario where there's a bunch of picky birds discarding imperfect seeds, now Johnny doesn't even have to crack open the pine cone anymore because there's just seeds on the ground. So now all of a sudden he gets seen and he doesn't die. And then he gets to have babies, and because this is a heritable trait, we got more crossbills that get born. And then later, and I think you touched on this too, I get maybe I can hit both of them. Oh now we get to the impoverishment part, uh-huh. and then the crossbill variant of these little finches. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, when those the pine trees their parents ate become scarce, they realize, oh yeah, guess what? We're really good at opening up the ones from this fir tree over here. Our little bill that wasn't fit for the previous thing is better fit for this. And then they branch, whatever, I don't know. Yeah. No, that's. I'm just saying, you've got your mutant kids, and when there's a bunch of resources, more mutants will survive. Yep. Because it relaxes selection pressure when there's a lot of resources, and then diversity follows. Yeah, and so that was another like little aspect. You know, if you, I mean, I figure that, this is sort of derived from the same things as, you know, natural selection is derived from in that, you know, asking questions of the premises, like more born than can possibly survive. Well, what if more are born that do survive? Like what, what happens if that happens? You know, it's, it's just simply, you can also think of it in those terms of like, well, what if, what if Johnny finds a way, you know, and, uh, Rather than, I, I think sometimes we get quite restricted in our thinking about some of the premises. We're like, nope, more born than possibly survive. More born 
than should have survived or could have survived right. were there not a new strategy discovered by right. the more. Right. So it's like asking questions of the premises. Uh, now we can go in a bunch of different directions here. We can probably can diversify. Do, <laughs> do the right thing and make it more interesting for probably most people. And at least go into sort of the, you know, the people's place and talk about that a little bit. Um, and, and then, uh, then we can then, I guess I have these other things that I would, I could talk about. Like there's other mechanisms that I'd want to contrast this against. But I don't know if we want to do that tonight. You know, that might just like be me talking about all of a sudden, all these other mechanisms. And that's a great thing to do. Maybe when you're doing science with science people and you're communicating with them, but on a podcast, I don't know how necessary it is. But then I would get into my own, like the actual biological examples. But I don't know if we should do a quick sidetrack to the anthropogenic systems thing. If it's quick and it's what the people want, oh, yeah. might as well do that and then go back to the... After it, more people have tuned out. <laughs> Jesus. Or fallen asleep or finished the dishes or arrived <laughs> at their destination while they were trucking. Whatever you people do while you're, lis- while you're not listening to this. Yeah, it's just call us out if you're a trucker. Um, <laughs> your face when I said that. that this is the kind of thing you don't get when you're many states away. Um, so anthropogenic systems. What the fuck is that? Well, it just it's the uh, politically incorrect thing to say. It's just man-made systems, uh, and uh, you could say human-made or whatever. But it's just systems that are generated by people. Um, so I think of examples of those types of systems would be like financial slash economic, organizational, cultural. Um, and so let's talk about some system types and we'll use a biological one and then we'll break it down a little bit, um, to, and, and in, in comparison to other system types. And then we'll get into some examples really quick, but like say ecological. All right. Well, you got a... For a system in like a, you know, the, the ecological type of system, you could have metapopulation. And that is you have um, sort of this patch network of places where, you know, groups of individuals belonging to the same kind of reproductive, uh, you know, population exist. But they don't connect necessarily very strongly with, with each other. There's not a lot of migration between them. So they call this a metapopulation. So you can kind of think of it, Harlan lives in Minnesota. There's a lot of lakes dotting the land. Well, imagine those dots are just populations. And so they're connected from time to time, or they're not super strongly connected. And so they kind of have their own little um, autonomy, if you will. And so then each one of those little dots or lakes or whatever you want to call it to analogize with the population, we'd call a local population or something. So it's a component of this larger system. Well, lo and behold, in financial systems, we do, we have like a portfolio in stock, uh, the stock market. And so then equivalent to the meta population, you have your portfolio. Well, then the local population would be like an asset. Does that help? Is that starting? I'm going to keep going. Or you have the organizational system type. So your system could be like a company, but then a particular like system component could be like 
a branch of that company, you know. Or you could have, in cultural examples, you could have like a migration network. And then you'd have a component of that network would be a community. So it's that kind of thing that I'm trying to bridge across. That there are similarities within these, um, you know, from the ecological to the, uh, you know, or you could almost say like, you know, the biogenic to the anthropogenic systems. So, you want some examples? Well, or do you want to do something else first? Are you saying with the whole lakes thing, you could pay attention to count, quantify over all of the perch in Upper Red Lake? Or I like, might have got in I, this I threw, exact but yeah. body of water. This species of fish here they are. There's twelve thousand of them. Boom. Or you could say, no, no, I mean all of the perch in Minnesota, in all of the lakes. And that's the metapopulate. Is that totally Kind off? of. Yeah. So long as there's a connection between these various areas. Of course, today it's accentuated um, because of the fragmentation of the natural environs or whatever. And so we, we typically break things up because we have our human settlements all over the place. And so that tip... That actually is like a, a, a forced divide between different groups of, you know, populations or whatever. But this can also occur naturally. And you could look at it in terms of lakes. Uh, you don't just have to talk about perch. You could talk about the little insects that skim across the top or whatever. The thing about lakes that's nice, it's the same thing with like an island archipelago. These are isolated kind of, you know, the perch have to kind of stay in the lake until like one of the... You know, what? there's a spillover between them or something like that because the rainfall has increased or something. I don't know. Whatever. Well, they um, grow lungs. Yeah. They start trekking. Well, now that they're trekking, we have to put them to work. Anyway. What? What? So. <laughs> so. Uh, um, Build a wall. Don't let them come in our lake. <laughs> Those right. perch aren't welcome here. Yeah. There's other things I could do in terms of like com cross comparison between the different kinds of systems. One of the funny things that I find is that in the financial world, like the whole portfolio asset thing, you want to have it's the same kind of dynamics as sort of a meta population. You want to have um, all your assets be kind of different, which kind of um, maximizes your standard deviation of the differences between your assets because if you don't want them to all be in sync, Synchrony, because then they'll all like crash together and rise together, and you don't want that. You want a stable. You want to be diversified. There he goes. So it's called diversification, and uh, there's now like this back and forth of a relationship between you know meta population ecologists and the financial world, because there's these similarities in these sort of the way that these things are arranged. Anyway, I was only just to give a taste, but let's give you an example of some quick things. Here's an impoverishment example. Um, in uh, in Carlsbad, uh, California, which is just north of San Diego, and in Woodburn, Oregon, which is south of Portland, there's um, these, I guess you could say these, these floral farms. <laughs> the one in... Uh, in Oregon is a tulip farm, and then the one in 
Carlsbad is a ranunculus farm. Um, these people, you know, at, at one time growing bulbs, which is what they primarily produce, uh, was to an extent sort of a good thing. It, it, it produced, you know, people liked bulbs and they liked to have them for the Christmas season and all that kind of stuff. They figured out how to force them for those particular times. And it was business, you know, and you could sell your bulbs to lots of small flower shops as well as, you know, the flower parts of a grocery store or something. What do they call that? Like, you know, it's the part where you go, there's flowers and balloons and you, you know, anyway, right? Anyway, so... um in these two different uh, uh, farms, I guess you could say, working farms, one of the things that happened was that just the floral market started to, people just didn't buy them as much. Or um, like the grocery stores took over and just like, you know, with Barnes & Noble or whatever, all of a sudden it was like the small bookshops went out of business and small flower shops were not staying in business as well. So business for grown bulbs wasn't great. But one of the things that these farms do is... Every, you know, season when they're growing them to cut and create cut flowers or what have you, they have these beautiful fields full of flowers. And it's just natural that they have people gawking at them. And so the transition was pretty natural that they had this variation in terms of their capacity to make money in all these different ways from this one product. But they diversified when things started going downhill when the resources were not there anymore for, you know, the resource being primarily, you know, money and the sales of their bulbs were declining. And they then had this alternative resource of, uh, or way to get money, which would be people gawking at their flowers and taking pictures of themselves that they could then kind of jump over to. And that became for these two different places, a huge revenue source and uh, so that's the, the basic kind of diversification event that occurs there through an impoverishment of, uh, you know, the resources, who's buying your bulbs and, and uh, you know, that going away and then having this alternative where people are naturally gawking at your stuff. And then you <clears throat> jump over and say, well, hey, I got hot dogs and hot chocolate, everybody, mm -hmm. you know, come on over. And then you take advantage of that resource. Now, this is going to sound really similar to a one that I give about natural populations of bugs later. That made a lot of sense to me, I think, that the the point of this is you're going to tell a story about how episodic synchrony applies across all, most, many different types of systems, as long as there is enrichment and impoverishment of a resource and a potential for diversification of variation in the consumption side. Yep. So in this example, we had a an impoverishment in one particular variant of economic accrual, value accrual, mm -hmm. we no longer can commercially extract money from a bunch of local florists because the local florists go out of business because Safeway or Kroger's or whatever drove them to that right. to extinction. And now the, the flower business needs to find a new economic strategy, a new a variant 
for monetary extraction and they switch from commerce to tourism in order to yep. stay alive. Yeah, agritourism is what the thing is called. And I, I think a lot of farms have tried to do that. Um, the one in Woodburn had one of those like Field of Dreams moments. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but at the end, like everybody's coming out to like watch these ghosts play baseball. <laughs> anyway, so the premise. Well, as is you say, Generation X references coming oh, no. around. Jesus, but there's this long line of cars at the end of the movie that's like going out to the highway or whatever. Who doesn't want to watch ghosts play baseball? I do. Um, Other than also, Michael Shermer, maybe. Oh, right. Yeah, he'd, he would just sit there with his arms crossed, just looking away. So an, an enrichment one um, is uh, one called uh, Elite Overproduction, which is by um, is an idea by Peter Turchin. I've mentioned him a few times now um, in this podcast. And he's a historian who studies, um, well, he's, he, he, he okay so i'm already referencing his stuff in a way um about consumer resource cycles because that's that was you know his big thing was population cycles and he was a population biologist in biology departments but then he got bored or he the the, the discipline matured and so he moved on to another kind of interest of his which was uh, history and so he started to study history with what tools he was already kind of a master at and lo and behold he was able to see or at least collect enough information that gave him um confidence that he was seeing cycles in history and so one of the things that he talks a lot about is this idea called elite overproduction and it is essentially the idea that even within one stratum of like our society if you were to think of like one axis being you know lower middle and upper class or whatever and we often break it down even further we're like upper middle class and all that shit um so if you just took it the upper class the stratum of that like these are the rich people um that there are over time there isn't enough uh opportunities for people even at the top and his whole thing about elite overproduction is that's what kind of drives a lot of these cycles is because there's a lot of bitter people like Trump who are like, I want in, Clintons. And, there, you know, there's, uh, I'll, I'll tell this the idea, but like essentially the idea is that even for the elite, they get all these resources, but there's not enough uh, places and opportunities for the elite to have say there's only so many senate seats there's only so many kind of lobbyist positions you can take at a given time there's only so many you know whatever uh i often think it's also probably not too dissimilar you could say elite in a lot of ways it doesn't just have to be financial necessarily but you could say like there's only so many tenure track positions for scientists and philosophers there's, you know and that's kind there's of only elite. so many starting centers in the nba that's right so the NBA players get really bitter and they're like, fuck this shit. No. Um, one could say if I actually bothered to do it, maybe I could look into some of the times when the leagues, where new leagues were created. Interesting. I might do ah, that. Like when there's a, they bring in six expansion teams and that's a resource enrichment or whatever. Or, yeah, or, you know, they start a whole, like the USFL or whatever, you know? Anyway. 
Um, the idea is that they start to become, once they start to get uh, enriched to the point where now they want to do something with their power and ability, they can't. You know, like they've got, the, you know, imagine getting a PhD and, you know, instead all that's really out there, if you can get it, is some kind of um, $10 an hour postdoc position. And what you were hoping for was a tenure track position where you get to have all these accolades and do all this great science. But you don't even get a chance to do, you know, the lab work because, you know, you're busy busting your butt for not much. So um, there can be a power struggle there. And this is, uh, you know, the idea that they fragment quite extensive, expensive. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. They... It, there's an extensive we're fragmentation. we're not elite around here, but you are overproducing something. <laughs> there's an extensive um, uh, a, a, a fragmentation of the elites, and there's always there becomes a struggle then for the what is available, because they do. It's not like they don't have power and ability, and so then that becomes an issue. However, I'd also like to say that this. I would, I'm going to make the jump. Um, one of the things that I think about is, uh, you know, today's world where everybody's the cultural and ethnic identities and all that kind of stuff um, is becoming this thing or, or maybe we're strengthening our, you know, like extremes in our two-party system or whatever. And then all of a sudden you start to have this resurgence of a middle, you know, uh, with like, you know, I'm talking about like, say the, Whenever I think about these IDW people or whatever, I think that's that's this elite overproduction struggle for shit. You know, it's just this, you know, wait, wait a minute. You know, things were great back in the 90s and the 20th century. God damn it. Why aren't we, you know, and um, there's this, uh, I'm not explaining this all at all very well. Maybe you'll save me, Ireland, again. No. Um, oh, shit. Um, but the idea being... <laughs> it's probably been two hours by now. <laughs> the idea you being wish. that don't look at the clock. I know, Jesus. Um, the idea being that there's only so much to go around, and somehow we're hitting that capacity point. And the big problem with elite overproduction, when everybody starts pecking at what available resources are there, is that they're not what they require is an alternative resource. So you need to like create your own or have a alternative league to go to if you're there's only so many centers uh, in the NBA or whatever it is. Like there needs to be something that you can do elsewhere, um, and maybe the only way to really access that is to if you have a particular kind of variant type that can connect with that alternative. So one of the things I've thought about with elite overproduction is something like Bitcoin or alternative money resources that would then be something that only a particular kind of person might be able to access and then suddenly be playing in a completely different like uh, monetary system entirely or something like that. But I haven't really dove. You mean like somebody says, I already have all the dollars. 
So now I need to continue to acquire things. So now I'll make a new type of currency so then I can have all the dollars and now all the bitcoins. Well, it'd be like, I already have all the dollars, but I don't get to do anything now that I have all the dollars. What if I played in this other monetary system, which was a way to, for me to buy my way or use power in a different way to get positions in different ways? Because maybe if we influence the world through an alternative monetary system or something like that, and I'm already a central player in that, then I can get all the goods. Or I don't know, maybe I'm just, this is me just... This is me just regretting everything I just said. <laughs> so I'm an NBA center. Nice. And in I'm the starting league, to get a, I'm starting to get a, like, you had dreams. You were like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't elite. That's right. I mean, wait. I in the league that. that I play in, there are rules and there's salary caps and there's a max contracts. So I'm really good. I get into the best league for my sport in the world. And then I am so good at it that even among them I'm the elite and I sign a max contract. They can't, they're not allowed by rule to pay me more than they are paying me. Uh-huh. So it's all maxed out. But lo and behold, I can find another way to accumulate money by endorsements. I can do advertisements and Nike will give me far more than my team was ever allowed. Mm-hmm. Is anything about that story relevant to elite overproduction? To an extent. I think with the elite overproduction thing, is not that you need to get more money, but now that you've got money, you want to have influence on the world, you know? And you want to be able to have uh, credibility, not just be rich. Because I think that's something that bugs people is, well, I have all this money and no one respects me because I didn't, you know, I don't do anything and I'd like to do something and um, I'd like to be important. I'd like to have value. So, so this is more like Kanye hitting the top of the charts and then moving to politics. Yeah, this is more like that. I need to get into the Oval Office of the White House now and have a consult with the big man. Yes. Okay. Would Kanye have had that opportunity with George W. Bush after he said everything about him? But uh, I, I think that under certain circumstances, maybe not. So maybe Trump provides an opportunity for a lot of people who are feeling a little left out in the power play. Opportunity cost for the rest of us. Why are we talking about Alito? How does this wrap back to episodic synchrony? Well... It's just a at this stratum. It's a it's right now we're in like a bubble or you know where the you know uh, enrichment is increasing quite a bit, and um, in terms of this particular stratum, the the wealthy, you know how they're talking about like you know the middle class going away or whatever, and so now that there are, there are those that do have money, there are still only so many opportunities for them to you know, other kinds of resources that would be important. So forget about the money thing. They find themselves in this spot. It should be like, okay, all you people in this room. But then there's only so much that each person can do in that room because there's only so many chairs, musical chairs or whatever. And so that's the power thing. So they're now in a situation where they're being driven or forced to uh, 
have winners and losers, even though by a different measure, they're all winners. But by this other measure, now even here, where you would think, oh, well, you've got, you know, yachts and you can fly anywhere you want and you can go on vacation in space when that becomes available, you still don't, you know, in this other context, you don't have the opportunity to be a representative or to be something important beyond just being rich. And so with those fewer opportunities being there and the more, there being apparently more and more people filling into that stratum because either they're coming up from the middle class and the middle class is going away and we're getting more and more people in the, the lower class as well. But the idea that you're filling in that room of the stratum or whatever, holy fuck, um, that's, you, you give no signs whatsoever with your face. So I'm like, I just keep talking. And I'm like, nothing's hitting, I don't think. <laughs> look away. So anyway, <laughs> so that's what I mean. Uh, oh. Anyway, I thought this yeah. would be helpful to go into the anthropogenic area, but I don't know. I think that we, I mean, yeah. I The anthropogenic stuff is good and important and the, should be appealing to the listeners, as you say. And I like I don't I liked the previous version better I guess than this than adding the elite overproduction part, but that just might be me and someone out there might have got it. Mm. But you know, maybe not. I it's okay. I'm I'm not prepared. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not prepared. We could call it this episode that. Well, yeah. I don't know. What's I would say. That I'm content to let that okay. sit and move to the next All right. example or idea. Well, I was thinking, I don't want to give other mechanisms because, Jesus Christ, I'm killing everybody here. Uh, and already, I just want to say, you know, there's various kinds of outcomes, though. I do have to say this from this type of process. You could have hybridization, uh, so your cross-bill could mate with a non-cross bill and have like a semi-cross bill and find out that that's even better or something like that. But you could also have dilution where it's like these sort of, you could have a divergent population or something like that, but then it comes back in contact with the sort of non-divergent parental type trait state or whatever, and it just gets absorbed and you lose that variation to an extent maybe because there's recessive and dominant alleles or something like that you know that that there's traits that are you know have a have an interplay at a molecular level that get expressed more frequently even in the presence of you know your alternatives or whatever so you dilute uh you could have obviously lemmings going off the cliff death you could have the whole damn thing goes extinct the whole fucking lake you just you know you know we just go there and we just keep you know taking what the perch like to eat and anyway uh, and they all die and then you've got uh you know dispersal like i was talking about with the spider just like suddenly like dispersed in a way to my car because normally it seemed like they were setting up between trees and walls and things like that and now they decide this one's like oh yeah i'll go in a car and then you've got um things kind of happening in situ you know just sort of in place 
where you have a scenario where it's just you're diversifying next, you know, you got, you know, right next to, you know, of, you know, an individual that has the more parental type trade or something or a different trade entirely. So it's that kind of thing. So then I, so I just need to say that, that there's lots of different kinds of operations. And I think they're all have a relationship to diversity in one way, form or another, whether you're subtracting, you're adding, or you're multiplying, or you're dividing that kind of thing. Um, so, but now I guess I just have my examples and I also just want to go to bed. <laughs> what? How can you want to go to bed when it's example time? All right, it's exa- you love examples. I know I love ex- I cultivated these examples, so I'll try not to like go off the fucking rails on this shit. <clears throat> so, do you want? Need What's this to- going to be an example of? A fly. Which idea is this going to exemplify? Impoverishment. <laughs> You, do you have a particular Im, this is an example of an impoverishment scenario and how it played out in the evolutionary mechanism of episodic synchrony or whatever right yep yeah <laughs> man you guys want to talk about a face the <laughs> face that came with that yep was classic <sighs> All right, we're talking maggot flies, people. Okay. And who wouldn't want to talk about a maggot fly, a flying maggot? This is terrifying. I know. I don't know why they're called maggot flies, because it's like, aren't most flies maggots at one point? Why are these so special that they get to be maggot flies? Never. They look like flies. They had a bad publicist. Yeah. They look like flies. And yeah, there's a maggot stage like most flies have. Anyway, so a lot to say, and I'm I have another impoverishment example that's a fossil one, and the whole point I thought was I would do like a non-fossil, then a fossil, then a non-fossil, then a fossil for impoverishment and enrichment. So now I don't know what I'm gonna do. All right, but the magaflies one is pretty. I think I can do this one. All right, <clears throat> so in the mid to late no. In the early to mid, <laughs> I can do this. I can. I can do. <laughs> Jesus Christ! In the early to mid 1800s, throughout the the you know the states in the northeast of the United States, um, and maybe they did this elsewhere. I don't give a shit. But um, they cut down the trees quite a bit. So they they deforested the land. If you look at old photos, um, when photos were available to be had, uh, you, you'll see pictures of places that just look like Iowa, but they're, they're like, no, that's Vermont. You know, like, oh, okay, you know, just rolling hills of just grass or, you know, no trees. Um, and so there was quite an, an extensive amount of deforestation going on for growing you know, different kinds of products, you know, plant products, but also for, you know, uh, letting the sheep run around and having the wool and all that kind of stuff. In addition to that, cutting down the trees helped build boats and houses and whatnot. So that was quite extensive. In the Hudson River Valley, which is in upstate New York, Hudson River Valley is where I'm from originally. Just (laughs) thought you should know. Um, 
what ended up happening was we kept moving west in the United States. And so as people moved west, if you were growing wheat, uh, you know, back east, you could grow more wheat in, you know, Indiana than or in Ohio than you could, say, in uh, upstate New York. So people just were kind of, they had more elbow room. They were having a good time. Yada, yada. <laughs> anyway, but the people back in the Hudson River Valley were like, fuck, what do we do? Um, around about this time, you have the trains starting to get going having an intercontinental train system. And uh, that meant that at at least some relative speed, if you were somewhat close to a distribution hub, Chicago, New York, whatever, you could maybe come up with a plan for, okay, what if we do this? Then we can zip that product over to the distribution hub and, you know, make money this way. So they decided in the Hudson River Valley when, you know, wheat and, uh, sheep were no longer a viable option that they would do cattle and they'd do dairy cattle and they'd create all these, you know, uh, bottles of milk and they'd ship them real quick down to New York or whatever. In addition to that, the tanning was a big deal. So they wanted hemlock and shit. So deforestation in Hudson river Valley was increasing even more than it had before. Meanwhile, other States are like, Oh fuck. There's no, you know, they, in Indiana, they've got all the wheat now. I guess I won't do it. And so you end up having the reforestation of these areas beginning around that time when the Hudson River Valley is like, no, we're going to cut more. And the pollen records show this and uh, pictures show this. So there's lots of different evidentiary components or premises that all kind of point to, okay, it's just getting more and more, all the decisions, the records, etc. At the same time, something that became a big deal in the 1800s fucking apples and they'd been there since at least the 1600s but in this period of time they just became like everybody's growing cider or growing apples and making cider and apple pie and all these varieties of apples were popping up all over the place and of course the hudson river valley in esopus i don't know why i can remember that fucking town's name i guess esopus weird name um New York, that's, like, where they had the first, like, full-time, like, we make apples, you know, like, kind of operation. Um, and this is all happening relatively at the same time. Well, when you're tearing up the forest even more than you did before, uh, you're, you know, losing all these trees. Well, the thing is, is that there's this fly called the hawthorn maggot fly. And it uses the hawthorn berries. I have a hawthorn tree, by the way, out in front of the house. So if you ever look at it and you ever, you ever, fuck it. There's, there's fucking berries, Farland. I don't know. They might be covered in maggots flying. Yep. That's right. I don't know if I've ever seen any, I've looked and I haven't seen any yet, but they should be there. Anyway, it's, you know, the, the trees are too far apart. Anyway, uh, Hawthorne maggot flies, um, they stick there when they're gonna, um, lay an egg they have this like like little shovel blade or whatever you want to call it and they jam that thing through the skin of a fruit and they pop that egg in there and you pop that fucking fruit in your mouth and you don't realize you're eating fucking eggs not after tonight (laughs) so um i fucking eat them i'm just like well jesus christ who cares uh anyway but they do this 
thing. What is it called? Is it overposition or something like that. They pop it in there and whatnot. But if you don't have any fucking forests, or the, if it's extensive, the amount of deforestation, where are your goddamn hawthorn trees? They're probably going, if it's a forest, and you got fucking flies doing this thing where they pop their egg in, the berry eventually drops to the ground, it kind of rots, but it's a source of sustenance, it goes into the ground, the, the little maggot then burrows into the ground, it has this whole life cycle, and then in the following season, when it's time to, you know, uh, made again, it becomes a fly, and they fly around, they find each other, they fuck, and then they go back to this cycle. Well, you're losing all these trees, right? You're, I mean, I, it's an inference of mine, but if the forest is going away, they're not like, cut down that fucking oak and that pine, but leave the fucking hawthorn. No, they're just like, you know, I'm... Yeah, they Dr. Seuss the whole thing, they Lorax it, we're yep, gone. Gone. So, uh, now... One thing I want to introduce really quick is that another thing that's been gathered up by, uh, you know, researchers into this particular fly is that there's quite a bit of genetic diversity um, that has arisen from the populations that it seems like would have taken place in the Pleistocene uh, when we had glaciers um, and all of the ecosystems kind of got sandwiched between the lati- you know, the, the tropics and the, the leading edge of the glaciers, the continental ice sheets. So that meant that hawthorn maggotflies weren't in the tundra. They were down in Mexico. And it looks like there's some kind of genetic diversification event that occurs. Because the plants, if they're up in the north, they have different light. You know, uh, you know, daylight hours, they have se- increased seasonality, temperature changes and whatnot. But down in the south, they have different light exposure, you know, from the sun. And so there's going to be different flowering times, different fruiting times as you go up based on, you know, the way that the seasons change. And the plants will try and match that. Well, what ended up happening is they kind of got separated, the hawthorn flies it seems and that seems to coincide with the creation and the extensive eruptions and caldera collapses of what's called the trans-mexican volcanic belt and so this thing may have kind of separated some of these populations and so you get some who have a particular kind of uh in the populations you have some individuals that have this ability to um get ready to do their life cycle at one time and then there's this sort of more you could say northern set of populations that does it at a, like a earlier or later, no, later time, um, for their, you know, uh, you know, their, their own reproductive life cycle, all the different stages following me people. Anyway, there is diversity in the background of their genetics, as well as in, they have this variation, they have eggs in many baskets. And so one of the things that's interesting is you got all these apples, but the hawthorn trees are going away. Suddenly, by about, you know, right after these this extensive cutting is going on, you got these apple farmers complaining about a pest in their apples they didn't have before, and it's maggot flies. And the maggot flies have now accessed through their variation of their own reproductive cycle. Because some, you know, if you think about it, there's going to be some that start the reproductive cycle earlier than others. And the vast majority are going to hit on the 
when the hawthorn trees are, for the most part, the vast majority of them are blooming. And so, but you've always got these early, you know, early starters and you've got these late bloomers, right? And so some of the, is it the early starters? I, 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 anyway, the apples, I think, bloom before hawthorns and do their fruiting. So they're earlier starters of this particular variation or variants in the apple magnetflies that jumped onto the apples because they could, because they're looking around like, what? because, you know, what am I going to do? And so now there's a pest in apples. Well, there's a fucking shitload of apples. There's so many goddamn apples, the goddamn industry almost collapsed. They're just like, what do I do with all these apples? Well, that's a boom for a resource for this other uh, variant. And anyway, eventually they said, fuck it. Let's not worry about cutting down all these trees. And the forest grew back and the hawthorn trees came back. And with them, any other hawthorn maggot flies came back as well. And so for a long time, this was considered a kind of uh, a particular case of sympatry, which is where you have a thing evolve in the presence of its parent. You know, a daughter lineage evolve in the presence of its parent lineage. That was one of the big things that, you know, took place at one time. But in any case, this sounds to me like the agritourism thing, where it's like, well, what are we going to do? Well, we have this, you know, capacity to do this other thing and access an alternative resource. Let's do that. And so that's the apple maggot fly example that I have. They jump to the apples because shit's going downhill. But that shit is important to their reproductive life fucking cycle. And they can't really do what they do without it. And it's a beyond the regulation of all other factors because there's this whole group of people studying the wasps that have evolved because of that too because they caught them. They're like, hey, they're over here in the apples. Like there's all of these network components that interact together. And yet this, you know, there's, 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 it's not like they have, oh, well, we do, you know, the hawthorn berries and the cherry berries or whatever the fuck you want to call it. And they all happen at the same time. It doesn't really matter. They're screwed, but they somehow there were these apples. And so they just went over there anyway. So that's that example. Uh, I will not be doing the fossil one, <laughs> but you got, okay. Um, Jesus Christ. Well, wh- what about this part? This was such a bad idea. <laughs> no. You're full of information. Mm. And you can fill us all up, mm. too. In the Dawdler's tradition <laughs> of noticing claims and requesting arguments for them, <laughs> one of the things that you have mentioned repeatedly, and it sounds like if one focuses on it, a relatively large claim, maybe, is this the aspect of it where you're saying the episodically synchronous influence is number one, and it overwhelms all others. Yeah. That sounds contentious. Like, all right, well, so in this case, you've got human practice uh, both eliminating, but also eliminating a traditional food source, but creating another one or enhancing another one. The hawberries are gone. You got apples instead now. Mm-hmm. And if it so happens that your spade is capable of digging into this soil as well, flies great. Okay, 
and that that factor is more important than many others. But if you want to say all others, or what if, not that we were doing this in 1885, but what if we DDT'd those fuckers, or what if there was pesticides that would overwhelm mm. the episodically synchronous change from berries to apples if there's a, a another species that fucks your shit up and just kills you all or something. Well, here's the thing. What I'm trying to say is that, and I may not be saying this very well, but the idea is that at the start, the trees are going back, you know, are being cut back even more. And so it's not like there's an alternative that you always access that is just as important. And you can just go, well, the Hawthorns are going away, but, you know, we still got this other thing. No, the Hawthorns are going away and you're like, fuck. And so nothing is necessarily saving you from that decline. There may be no apples. There may be no replacement of any kind. If there were no apples. And when the Hawthorn berries are gone, that's it. Or plums or anything, you go and you're extinct Mm -hmm. in that spot. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't hawthorn trees elsewhere and then if it ever grows back the forest and the hawthorn trees come back then you'll still have hawthorn you know mm-hmm. maggot flies that follow the, the tree distribution but yeah that's the idea but you happen to have the variation in your background your genetic background if you will to be able to access because of the timing of fruiting and flowering of apples that matches the sort of early risers if you will um that may normally not get uh you know access to the good stuff because they don't the timing's off and there's always going to be this variation and so that's the idea not that like the pesticide would kill you know what i mean like yeah that would be a regulating factor on the whole goddamn situation but for those hawthorne maggot fly investors you know, those magaflies with this deep investment in Hawthorne timing. It doesn't, you know, throwing DDT is just going to kill them more. And they're like, ah, you know what I mean? Like it's the the resources are, are already pulling them down. All you're doing is kicking a dead horse by throwing DDT on them. That's all I'm trying to say about what you said. So it's not about the transition. It's about the initial like, fuck, we're going down. You know, why, you know, you're you're clamoring for something to like not you know to grab onto and in doing so if you have enough variation you can you know grab onto something it's sort of that idea uh yeah i don't know and if you have enough variation means like some of you can lay your eggs in apples and some can't you just happened upon some apples you also just happen to be an early uh reproductive cycler and that's, it's like total fucking chance, but there's a lot of apples and there's a lot of uh, 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 flies. So that's that example. Why are you withholding the fossil example? Uh, um, I guess just because this is going to be four hours easy. <laughs> this one example? No, this is just, longer than the night. apple fly. No, the night will be... I'm trying to go quickly. Isn't that hilarious? I'm like, oh shit, then there's this. That's important. Someone might be like, well, I don't even know why the Mexican flies were in there, but they're where the variation got established. 
And so that's important to me only, I suppose. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> ah. Oh, I'm sorry. But I This is it. from episode 15 or whatever. This is the whole like detail details thing. You're like, <laughs> no, but we need this and this and this. And I'm like, no, you didn't need those. Oh, my God. I guess I didn't. Not for tonight. All right. Well, I guess I'll give you the uh, fossil one. Yes. There are these um, bryozoans. They're like, they, they create little shelly things. There are bryozoans? Bryo, bryozoans. <laughs> bryozoan is someone you went to high school with. Bryozoans are some kind of marine organism. And um, there's this one type called a cupuladriid bryozoan. And I'm going to try and be really quick with this because, and you'll have all these questions. I'll be like, fuck it, we're moving on. These bryozoans, um, there's a good record of the bryozoans going from about 10 million years ago till the present. In the Caribbean, there's a transition where the Panama Isthmus formed. And it essentially, as it formed, it closed off what's called the Central American Seaway, which connected the uh, western... Uh, Atlantic, Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico with the Pacific. One of the things that the Pacific Ocean does uh, at these, um, you know, convergent zones in the continental, you know, shelves and the oceanic plates is because of the depth, there can be quite a bit of uh, upwelling of cold water. Cold water also has with it a lot of nutrients, but also just, you know, you know, can be highly oxygenated and things like that. This creates, oh my God, (laughs) God, the fucking details. You love it. Uh, Anyway, Uh, fucking dawdling on. So that cold nutrient rich water will spill over into the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico and kind of, equilibriate if you will like a diffusion uh entropy whatever but if you you know have a a porous membrane over time the you know the salty water will become salty water everywhere if you have a fresh component and a salt component initially it's that kind of thing you got all this kind of cool dense nutrient-rich water spilling into the gulf of mexico and with that then means you can support a certain level of ecosystem well, these bryozoans have two different style of reproductive types or whatever uh, ways that they reproduce. On the one hand, they can be clones, meaning they are asexual. On the other hand, they can be aclonal, meaning they are sexual. You get that, people? <laughs> um, as the Panama Isthmus closes um, or forms and the Central American Seaway closes, you're obviously locking off no, you're no longer bringing in cold, nutrient-rich water from the Pacific. So now you're starting to get warmer, nutrient-impoverished uh, water uh, in the, you know, the, the system there, in the, the Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean, Western Atlantic system. And simultaneously, there's, you know, um, uh, fewer records of whales. There's fewer, you know, records of large seabirds. Um, lots of different changes in the systems that all interact in this kind of marine food web. And so um, 
one of the transitions that happens is there's uh, a transition from clonal to aclonal for, did you like that move? Um, these bryozoans. And in part, it's this impoverishment that seems to be going on. The populations are getting smaller and there are new lineages forming, but they're all kind of aclonal with respect to the clonal ones. There's not many new clonal lineages forming. So that's the, that's a fossil example. And you have this impoverishment and that's a major change in resources. Major, not this fucking Apple Magapply <laughs> thing. This is major, right? So this is happening over a long period of time and it's extensive, but the 4.6 billion years, the geologists tell you the earth has been around 10 million years. It's nothing, right? It's just a little episode that happened. Maybe the Central American Seaway is opened up again and, you know, shit goes back to the way it was. So it's just an episode. It's major change in resources. And yet it's creating these diversification events. Um, so there's that. And that's the last impoverishment one I'll give tonight. <sighs> so let's move on to enrichment. Your favorite. Huh? I love enrichment. <laughs> um. So here's the modern day one. And what I like about a lot of these is what's really handy is that the anthropogenic systems are what's often causing these modern day example ones, which is nice because it's consistent. And like we humans love to be like, we love to cut all the way to the end. You know, we're just like, yes, clear all the forests. <laughs> and this one is going to be like, dump your trash everywhere. Um, so in Brazil, there's a, uh, in the 70s, there was a move towards trying to make the fishing economy better. And because there was all these, there were all these resources available um, to be able to distribute fish throughout the world, but also to kind of help the economy boost it locally. Um, you know, and this is not too dissimilar from the idea that like, well, you know, we can grow wheat better over here in Indiana than in the Hudson River Valley. Well, we already have, you know, fished all the fucking fish in the North Atlantic, you know, there's no more cod, there's, you know, whatever. So you start to, you know, restaurants or whatever start to rely on fish from around the world. You know, the people are like, that's not cod, that's a whatever from Brazil or, you know. So these major changes started happening, but with that, they, the you know, the, the, the people's, the society grew, people started moving there because there's jobs and you can, you can, you know, process the fish waste, but somebody's got to eat things besides fish. I'll make hamburgers. So you got a boosting, uh, economy going on in the coast of, uh, um, Brazil in this area called the Chubut province. And there's also a, uh, like a national wildlife preserve area as well. It's also an area where you've got um, uh, breeding grounds or, or calving grounds for the southern right whale. I believe it's the southern right whale. Anyway, um, in these little coves that exist in this area. Well, you know, all these different waste areas and then with the fishing fish processing areas, there's all this fish waste. And the fucking kelp gulls like went crazy with their growth. And are still, as far as I can tell, still growing. 
And so the growth of these kelp goals is like boom, 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 generation after generation, year after year. Those fuckers are going to diversify pretty soon. Hot diggity they are. So one of the things that not only do uh, these kelp goals, but other even like there's this brown hooded gull, they have this weird behavior uh, that they exhibit. That's right. Reach for the good stuff. Um, don't fucking waste your time with this crap. Oh, <laughs> wait. Anyway. Um, the thing about the, 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 these goals is that they do this alternative fucking thing, which is horrible for the whales, but it's awesome for them. They wear flannel and play electric guitars. Maybe, but we don't talk about that in science. We just don't talk about it. Anyway, they do this crazy thing where they, when the whales breach to breathe, because fucking whales aren't fish people. The seagulls dive down. Some seagulls, not all seagulls. Most seagulls are like, I don't know why they're diving down at these whales. This fish waste is free, uh, but they're doing it. They dive down um, and they take a chunk out of the fucking right whale. God like, damn it. The right whale goes, God damn it. Like he said. And uh, then the right whale's like, fuck this, I'm going down. But when the right whale resurfaces, there's this little patch of flesh, and the the kelp gold dives down and just tears the flesh. At the same spot? Yeah, and eats the fucking whale like a fucking parasite. This is... It's insane. yourself. Yeah. The number of these lesions, quote-unquote... Sorry, I did air quotes. We're on a podcast. <laughs> the number of lesions, quote-unquote, on these whales has just been, like, increasing every single fucking year. And uh, to the point where, like, almost there's like all the right whales are just like pockmarked with these lesions. Moreover, they don't, when they, I, I, I don't know how to say this because I don't have the papers in front of me. And I, it's been a while since I've thought about this one. There's a way that they've been able to track the gulls. The gulls that go after the fucking whales, they don't eat the fish waste, they don't go to the trash areas. They just eat the whale, you know, do the whale thing. So there's this like branching out that where they're just you know doing that where they weren't doing it really before they started having all this fish waste and added resources for these i think rather generalist goals uh that would be yeah sure i'll eat your trash and i'll eat some of that and you know you know everyone's gone to the fucking coast and tried to eat a sandwich and the fucking goals are like you know all around you and you're like god damn it goals go away crows do a similar thing Anyway, so that's an enrichment scenario. That's a modern one. And to me, it's just the beginnings. You know, this is just an initiation mechanism. You're boosting the population. Of... The enrichment was the number of breaching whales? No, the enrichment was the... <laughs> the enrichment is the added amount of waste. Like the, you know, the... the, the People are, are growing in numbers there. They're living in these in this Oh, area. okay, right. Because what and they so, did first was they ate garbage. So then we make more garbage. We make more which garbage. Which brings in more gulls. Make, yep. Because well, they're, they're, well, they're, they free start source. out as being garbage eaters. But then because there's more... They're just more, generalists. They'll, they just start out being like, I'll eat whatever. We create more whatever. We also create manufacturing waste from all the facilities that are 
you know, getting, you know, processing the fish that they, gets caught because the economy is being boosted because of the fishing economy. So you have this boost in that economy, the fishing economy, processing the fish. There's a lot of fish waste because people don't eat fish bones and all that kind of shit. But the birds are like, I'll eat that shit. So you got the fish waste and the just general waste being generated. And that's boosting the consumer population of goals because now they've got all this free shit to eat all day. Um so the whales are just doing their own thing the whole they're time. They're doing their own thing the whole time. But and now that there's a bunch of gulls here, a few gull variants, mutants, crossbills, weirdos, yep. say, I like fresh whale. I don't <laughs> like garbage. They already had this little bit of a behavior already in existence. So there's already the variation. The standing variation is some biologists like to say. So there's some quality about gulls likely because they're fucking generalists and they're like, I'll peck at whatever I need to peck at to just keep eating and keep living and whatnot. And so that's probably one of the type of things that they did. And um, what I like is that there's also, it could be something that they learned from some, from a lineage that they're not even really, I mean, they're somewhat closely related to, but it's not one of them. So in some ways you could also, and now it's getting late, some ways you could also say maybe there's like a bit of a meme thing going on where they're like, oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting idea. Anyway, sorry, I had to do it. Moving on. Fossil example, unless you want to talk about it more. The kelp gulls. I mean, they're garbage-eating gulls. And <laughs> Holy shit. So, fossil example number two for enrichment. Melanopsid gastropods. Yes. <laughs> All right. This one I actually have done quite quite a bit of analysis on, but uh, I don't know. Um, again, around 10 million years ago in Europe, we're talking Romania. Oh, that was a good time. That was, that was so good. If Rome. we could go back to then. Yeah. We'd, 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 yeah. Um, I was going to say something, and then I'm like, don't say that. <laughs> So, uh, Austria, Hungary, Romania, in this general area, there was a connection to the Mediterranean. And so it was this Pannonian Sea, as as it's called. I don't know why Pannon is the word that's being volleyed around, but that's what they called it, the Pannonian Sea, geologists who studied it. It's just an inlet. And eventually, the way, the one thing to, think about with Europe and like the Alps and all that is that you got Africa, pretty big place jamming into the European Eurasian continent right there, helping to establish a lot of this craziness, volcanic eruptions, but also just general mountain building. But as that happens, you know, there are these major structural changes in the surface of the earth. And there was one major structural change around, I think it's around 10 to 9 million years ago, <laughs> where uh, the Pannonian Sea was closed off and it became this, you know, isolated body of water. Well, there's still rivers and streams and stuff flowing into the damn thing, except now you no longer have a connection to a salt you know, water body, salt body, water, body of salt water. Um, 
<laughs> I wanted to say it so bad. Um, and so it becomes fresher and fresher and fresher and fresher and fresher. And it's filling up because more water's coming in, coming in, coming in. So it's starting to fill, fill, fill. But there's also these structural changes in the surface of the, of the earth are having an effect on the increased size of the lake. Well, initially what happens is uh, there are these gastropods, two different particular groups, let's just say. One is called the uh, Impressa clade, and the other one is called the Buai clade. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I've never heard anyone else say it, so I'm like, shit, what do I do? The Buai clade uh, diversified really rapidly following this change. Now, what's happening is there's a loss of those lineages that are saltwater uh, oriented. <laughs> They're adapted to live in saltwater. They're going away in this now newly isolated body of water, filling up with fresh water. Well, the, the uh, gastropods are coming in from the freshwater streams, I think. Uh, yeah. And so um, they're kind of encountering a new environment, a new terrain, a new world that doesn't have any of the, you know, you know, the, it, it's it's losing its members, essentially, the, the diversity that was already there. And there is a uh, run about the time that the the lake really starts to fill up. You get this diversification event of the buai clade. Now, one of the things I wanted to do was collect the information that I saw that I gathered in the reports by Dana Gary, who's a paleontologist. Um, and she collected all this data. So she's got these, uh, this set of data that just, you know, it, it, it has both variation and numbers. And so I thought this was a perfect example to be able to say that you increase not only in an enrichment zone, uh, in, in scenario, you increase your numbers, but you're also increasing the variation. And so um, doing a very, very simple statistical test, but I did a second one and it still pans out. Uh, when variation and numbers of these fossils that she collected by hand, so she didn't go to a museum and say, oh, I'm just going to count them. She actually went to the outcrops, collected the fossils, uh, and there's many of them. So she collected a lot of them. She's able to do a lot of different statistics and numerical techniques on them. When the um, numbers increase and the variation increases, right up, you know what happens next? All the you get all the different uh, uh, different lineages that arise from that particular group. Then with another group, it, it was a more slowly, gradually evolving group, uh, the Impressa clade. Same thing. When you increase the variation and the uh, when there's the, the 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 largest increases in variation and size, uh, population size, are met with an increase in uh, diverse diversity as well. Although not as many. Um, and that was uh, one of the things that I was thinking with the resource potentially is that these there are melanopsid gastropods that exist today. And I think all of the modern ones are algae eaters. And so in the scenario that I would say is possibility is that, you know, as you're increasing the lake, 
size, the substrate for algae to grow on and thus for the gastropods to eat would increase as well. Um, creating an ex, you know, a huge explosion of the population size. And then you get this diversity in uh, snail shells and things like that. Honorable mentions, Darwin's finches, cattle egret, bacteria, Loberg stickleback fish, Loberg lake stickleback fish, Lake Victoria cichlids, baleen whales. I could go on. <laughs> oh. I talk so much. Do you want to have anything to say or do you want me to close out with because it's something? Uh. <laughs> when I encounter this idea, if or to the extent that I understand it, because there's many of the details I'm unable to appreciate because I just don't have the background or the interest <laughs> to follow all of that. Mm-hmm. But the germ of the idea, if it is summarizable in a similar way that I did with the birds or whatever, that what you're saying is if we go from more than are born than can survive to... Well, if you increase the resources, more that are born can survive. We already have the premise, because there's blind variation, we've already got if more are born, then there are more variants. And then if we just add more of the born can survive, then you've got more variation now than you had before. Yep. And since we have heritability already, uh-huh. then you have more of those variants making more like themselves if you have more of something making more like itself that's basically the definition of diversity my general response to this idea is this can't be your idea i know this how can this not be standard already it just seems so obvious to me when it's put this way i'm like okay i'm sure that's part of evolutionary theory yeah i and i'm i hope i'm wrong but even you are sending me uh chapters by nietzsche being like i think he thought of this and i'm like yeah he did but like this isn't in textbooks they're not like and this is how we get new lineages and that's probably a thing that often happens that the convergent Mimetics or whatever. various people will come up Here's, with the same idea, but it might not be codified or noticed or put in the right terms or made. I think that's only to the benefit of the idea that, oh, okay, other people are thinking about this as well. There might be something to this that we can really explore. It's not just my little fantasy dream because lots of things like that happen, right? People come up with their own little like scenario it suits their own idiosyncratic life or whatever it is. And, you know, it's just uh, history is littered with ideas that were like that. It's not littered, I think, with ideas that are really strong in their construction that are also matched by other people coming up with the same kind of solution. I I see that as, you know, converging on a really beneficial, useful thing. You may not know what the benefit is right from the start, but you can kind of go, okay, 
like with Darwin and Matt, you know, Patrick Matthew and Alfred Russell Wallace. I mean, okay. So not only does he write this big ass fucking book, Darwin on natural selection, but a couple other people came up with the ideas. Well, they're like, Hmm. You know, I wonder, I wonder this, this, this seems like there's a lot of people out there and they're thinking about these things and these kind of conclusions that a lot of different people are coming up with. This seems like a path worth going down and seeing what, where it leads, you know, rather than just like, you know, any old random thought or whatever, because it's built on all these other things. And anyway, I'm just, yeah, talking. it seems like it to me. And the so, examples all seem to work. I have no philosophical problems with it. <laughs> you know, I typically critique most ideas I run into, but with this one, my natural reaction is much more like, well, yeah, duh. Rather than, <laughs> no, look, this is all fucked up, and this, and yeah, you, right. and, you fucked up, yeah. I think because the premises are solid. They've they've held for a long time at this point, at least as far as science is concerned, the age of science. There is a so what component that I think mostly, I think, <laughs> famous last words, I think mostly only scientists would care about. Scientists are Usually, I use this word prevalence again, but they they want to you know what what's really happening here you know like is this a mechanism just something that happens every once in a while and it's really not a big deal we shouldn't really focus our concerns about uh, diversification on that and we should really still stay with this other stuff or is this something that should be taken seriously by lots of people is there a reason to do that other than like yeah sure it makes sense I don't know how frequent or common it is uh, you know what I'm saying so like. I think biology has spent a lot of time not talking about this idea, personally, I guess. They've talked about a lot of other things, and they've talked around it, and they've done, you know, now there's people who are like, yeah, consumer resource systems, population cycle. It's a mature field now. It's like, oh, so there's not anything else we can draw from that, whatever. Can't play around with it anymore. It's like, yeah, whatever. Um, so I have, a, like, a little argument for why... It, you know, someone goes, so what? Who cares? Like, it's small. The, all these other mechanisms that you could talk about might be happening as well and just as frequently. And so all you've done is just add this one little thing. And I'm like, no, I haven't. I've added something big. It, ridiculous as that sounds to me, saying that out loud. So it's the prevalence argument. So I'm kind of I'm kind of pulling from things I haven't really mentioned yet. Is that Okay just going to have to like throw it out there. Um, I haven't set this up, but I'm just going to say it because, you know, there's citations that would be blocked in if this was a written text. Here's the argument. Okay. If, and it's an argument, <laughs> it's an argument coming from a paleontological perspective. Okay. So it's the, the patterns we see or we put together from the fossil record. We try and make sense of them. If most evolution, in this case, admittedly, morphological change in the fossil record, occurs at speciation events, at lineage diversification events, whatever you want to call it, and if most speciation events occur during recoveries following mass extinctions or during major turnover events, then episodic synchrony ought to be a highly or the most prevalent diversification mechanism in play due to the reduction of regulating factors on relatively 
weedy surviving lineages with large amounts of organismal variation, abundant available resources, and a relatively rapid capacity for exponential growth. I'm saying that if following a mass extinction, you then get this big, huge climb back with all these various lineages that are coming up because now, you know, the dinosaurs are gone. Here come the mammals, you know, that kind of thing. If most of the time evolution occurs that's at these diversification lineage, lineage diversification events, and if most of these events occur during or after these extinction events or major turnovers, this is what this this is the mechanism because you've got these weedy small organisms that probably were hiding underground or in areas they just happen to luck out to be in and um they've got a lot of variation that's a thing i didn't really talk about tonight but you know organisms with short generation times there's a correlation with that and general size because it takes a while to grow so if you're reproducing really quickly then you're probably not going to expend a lot of your internal cellular resources toward making yourself bigger necessarily but will make yourself tend to be, you know, smaller to get to that reproductive point. Um, the everyone's gone, or you know, all the lots of organisms are extinct. So, what resources are available? Are available pretty much to you and your conspecifics, or you know, whatever. And uh, you can you have a short generation time, so you're growing really quickly. You have the variation because you can pump out a lot of uh individuals and you have the possibility for things even one thing we didn't mention tonight but you could increase the number of mutations that occur you could do it really quickly and then once you start to increase the number of mutations you could start increasing the number of genetic variations and you know yeah that can contribute to phenotypic variation there's probably developmental aspects as well so that's that's the that's the so what that this is kind of embedded in a basal component of biology. Consumer resource systems are important because of reproduction and survival. So, you know, highly dependent upon, you know, for consumers, the resources. Um, so that means if this thing's happening a lot, then it may be sandwiched down to a relatively small period of time relative to the rest of it. Um, where other mechanisms may be taking place, but it's that this, you know, right after the extinction or whatever, when you really can get things going. Anyway, that was, that was my one argument. And then, of course, because it's a podcast, you can, I can't show you graphs, but there's, I would say, supporting uh, evidence for the, for that argument, the prevalence argument. So is the so what point anything like Episodic synchrony, if it happens, is rare. So it's we can marginalize it. Yeah, because it doesn't. Ha but is what you're saying in response? Maybe it is rare, but significant phenotypic variation is rare. Evolution is rare, or what? And when there's room, when evolution really cranks over and makes some progress does some stuff that's the very same time when episodically synchronous 
factors would be coming into play. Yeah, but where you will, it'll be happening a lot. So it, it's a prevalence argument, but it's also a frequency argument, I guess. If it's happening a lot, then the likelihood that some of that diversification is becoming, you know, over time, its own, it's becoming, you know, uh, concretized or becoming, you know, solid. It's finding its way through time. And, you know, it's becoming a winner and the losers are going away. You know, that's essentially what I'm trying to say is that. This is a process that, if it's happening in a rampant kind of way, will proliferate lineages that then have the possibility of continuing on and in their own right through not only episodic synchrony but other mechanisms possibly generating even further uh, diversifications and on and on and on. Uh, that's my big idea. That's my big contribution. Don't steal it and then call it, claim it for yourself and be like, I came up with something. But honestly, who could steal this idea after I talked about it? I'm like, blah, blah. I, yeah. I well, didn't give any so, references. Yeah, but you've got them. You know, the, you could put it up, put the published written version on the blog or whatever. But mm. like they're all saying nowadays, uh, let's say you want to write your book or write even worse write your scientific paper and publish it in some journal a thousand people will ever even look at it and 70 of those people will actually read it to the end and seven of those might understand half of it or you can go on a podcast where a hundred thousand people will listen to it hundred thousand oh Joe like, Rogan, boop, 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 yeah. <laughs> Not this one. But, it, you know, this is the new media. So now you have published Episodic Synchrony. Yikes. <laughs> and you're like, I take it back. We're not, we're not going to put yeah, this yeah. one out. Holy crap. This is not what I meant. <laughs> yeah, I know. Huh? It's out there now. This is the first time it's ever been, I mean, outside of me talking to you about it. Or, like, mentioning well, it. Well, when you stand kind of... on the street corner with your little practice amp <laughs> you got your microphone out and you're like listen up everybody there's these apple mag flies <laughs> and i'll tell you what yeah that would you've got to know this that. this is important yeah. don't walk past me i saw you earlier going to lunch get back here Things you keep You better throw them away You want to turn your back On your soulless days Once you were tethered And now you are free Once you were tethered That was the river This is the sea And now if you're feeling weary If you've been alone too long 